0: On behalf of
1: the oldies, can I say thank you for yeah, no inviting old. us to <laughs> the dinner, um, the ballad goes back a long, long way. In about 1959, the President was expected to recite on his own, from memory, <laughs> with no words. <laughs> now, I know had in the end, um, but that's nice to see the, uh, the ballad is still alive and kicking, so I think we'll start. I'll, I'll tell, tell you a tale a of a climber, climber, a draw of love on the Christ, a, a story to pluck at your heartstrings and tear your emotions to rights. He was tall,
2: he was fair, he was handsome. If you're not familiar with this, it's Shoal Stiles' famous comic poem, The Ballad of Idwell Slabs. It gets recited every year at my university club's annual dinner. We follow the story of our hero John Brown as he completes the daring deed of soloing up the idwill slabs, before descending headfirst to the cheers of the crowd, and all to win the hand of a beautiful woman. Mythical women aside, the question of how you can justify taking this risk, of leaving the rope behind, is one which has vexed me since I started climbing. It's a question I've asked all the people I've interviewed for this series. How can you justify the risks you take? How can the reward be so great? And why do people keep doing it, even after disaster strikes? You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing.
1: I really, really enjoyed the free soloing day, the sense of liberty, the sense of just moving over rock. I figured you can't claim to be the best climber in the world if you only could Redpoint, but you couldn't on-site solo something. I lived
3: in a rural area, so I wasn't going to get climbing unless I set off a route on my own.
1: Yeah, so I was soloing routes so I could get used to being in a situation where I knew that any mistake was fatal.
3: I did get good at bold climbing, uh, the serious climbing, because bold, bold routes often have a good kit but a bit of a run out, whereas serious ones, if you fall off, you're going to hurt yourself. And, uh, and uh, those are the ones that I got good at because I you know, developed a technique that was quite careful.
2: Being on the rock, escapism, the bubble of concentration, mileage, necessity, these all featured in people's motivations. And they're all personal. As a young climber, I shared many of them. A lack of partners, the freedom of movement, or just the joy of it. And I was aware of the risk. In fact, I saw a certain romance in taking that risk. I loved the fact that it was irresponsible, that it was naughty, and the sheer quantity of routes I could do. I was so desperate to be out on the rock at any spare moment. At the end of the poem, Shoal Styles leaves us with some sage advice. To keep your head uppermost when you're climbing. and If you're going to fall, be on a rope. When I broke these rules, along with half of my face in 2011, I wasn't engaged in heroic deeds, and I didn't end up on the floor in a bloodied, unconscious, fitting mess for the love of a beautiful woman. Love might have been enough for John Brown, but it wasn't for me. So why did I do it? And why do I still solo roots? I had a lot of time to ponder this over the next few weeks, as I awaited surgery to reconstruct my eye socket. It'd be understandable if this were the last time I climbed unroped. Understandable to many people at least. But not to me. I thought it'd be strange to stop. The risk was so obvious that it's not like this experience would suddenly bring it home. Many climbers have their soloing story. Hopefully not quite so dramatic. And in some ways, it's comforting to look to those you admire and see that they've experienced the same thing as you. It's the great leveller in climbing, in a way which other sports can't emulate. Both James McAfee and Katie Forrester told me about their experiences. James was the same eager and impatient teenager as me, albeit dangerously talented. Katie simply wanted the escape. Let's
3: say the, the 2 two I've been nearest to death on, Masters Wall and uh, when I walked down Borrowdale, so lit up Great End Crag when I was 16, Uh, and it was October, it was quite cold. I remember walking down there, I remember being really pissed off. I was going to do just a hard VS called Great End Corner, and I got a little way up and it was damp and dirty, so I quested left, and I nearly fell like three times getting up to this ledge about three pitches up, Uh, and then I was going to do top-picture Banzai Pipeline, but that was too wet to cross this groove. And I remember just having to set, you know, I was there shivering, getting cold, All right? I'm going to have to crack on and going up this wall, I didn't know it you know, wasn't in the guide uh, I didn't have the guide with me anyway but um, yeah I remember being really close to falling off It's just incredibly close you know like uh, I was really pumped and it was damp and I was slapping and I just, fuck it, just it just felt like the wind blew me in to these like holds higher up yeah, it was. Um, yeah, that that was the nearest time I've ever maybe fluffed it soloing, and I put that down to teenage angst and <laughs> stupidity. Yeah, that that was, that was super intense. The ones that I've checked out, you know, the roots that I've kind of absolutely inspected, they generally have felt okay because you haven't got the same element of doubt.
0: Yeah, I also did quite a bit of soloing as well. I'd go out and solo like out Pinnacle and stuff after. I'd sort of giving birth and I got really into the zone and started going up this route and there was two guys who were going to second it, after, uh, not second it, they were going to lead it but like with a rope and stuff after me and it was pretty wet and I just ended up, you've got to sort of down climb over this slab and it, it's like a proper mountain route, it kind of goes everywhere but I went totally off route and I started going up this like wet groove line and I was like oh my god this is really snappy and insecure and I don't like this and I got it got way above this slab and I was just like oh my god I'm going to be down there so I was like okay well I won't down climb that snappy bit so I ended up on this slab way above where I was supposed to be and it was just water was running down it and I did genuinely think I'm going to die if I make a mistake so I've just got to keep it all together like it's too serious for me to not to I've got to I've got to be concentrating so hard um, right now and it's A really easy route and the irony that i'm going to die on this
2: the beauty of soloing for me was in the word solo alone this was my world my control my rules i felt like john brown was missing this key part in his endeavors he wasn't alone he was performing for someone else's whims my motivations felt more pure but maybe i was wrong our culture is full of the same message The story of a heroic man risking his life for a woman is everywhere. And the story of that same man taking risks for his own pleasure isn't. Perhaps the most famous example is the story of Orpheus in Eurydice. Orpheus is given a lyre by his father Apollo. He learned to play it so beautifully that nothing could resist his music, neither the animals nor his enemies. Even the rocks were beguiled. Orpheus falls in love with a beautiful woman, Eurydice. They marry, but one day a shepherd makes an unwanted advance on her, and while escaping she is bitten by a snake and dies instantly. Orpheus sings of his grief, and everything in the world can feel it. His father advises him to travel into the underworld in an attempt to rescue his wife. Orpheus does so, and with the help of the gods and his music, He descends into Hades. He charms Cerberus, the three-headed dog guarding the entrance. He even melts the heart of Hades himself, the god of the underworld, who agrees to let Eurydice follow him back to life. On one condition. Eurydice will follow him through the caves, but if he looks back before they're in the light, he'll lose her forever. Orpheus holds his nerve until a few feet from the entrance. He can't hear Eurydice's footsteps behind him, and fears the gods have tricked him. He looks back, and Hades engulfs her for eternity. We're supposed to think of Orpheus as a hero for taking such great risks for love. But Eurydice hasn't asked to be rescued. Orpheus, like John Brown, is taking risks for the love of a beautiful woman. And we glorify danger, the uncertainty, simply because it's being done for someone else. But I didn't feel it should be an external thing. The whole point of going solo was that no one's involved. I felt that that desire should be intrinsic, the risk was personal, and the motivation should be as well. And besides, Orpheus lost his nerve. But life doesn't work like that. After my accident, I was lucky to have backup. The friends and strangers who picked up the pieces, Mountain Rescue who were on the scene within minutes, and the doctors and nurses who dealt with me afterwards. I'd already lost that sense of invulnerability that comes with youth. And I'd also lost the self-pity, as I realised the impact my actions had on those around me. I felt stupid and selfish. One of the friends who sent me a letter afterwards was John. He's the first voice you heard before the ballad.
1: On behalf of the oldest, I say thank you. As the honorary
2: president of the University Club, he's been the enthusiastic leader of its recitation for the past ten years. John's a bit of a hero of mine. He has that calm clarity of an experienced teacher. He's amazingly humble, but with a fatalistic streak too. When I turned 30, he came out to Stanage and followed me up the classic E1, Milsom's Minion. He shot up it, but was embarrassed to have a crowd. And as we chatted at the top, he said, that's the last extreme I'll ever climb. John sent me a collection of stories he'd written for a publication called Loose Scree. And as I read through them, there was one which hit home more than the others. And it showed me that perhaps the John I knew had grown from someone who was a little bit like me. It comes from a different generation. One where the leader doesn't fall was sound advice. And it strikes me that coming from a generation blighted by war might give someone a different perception of risk. John lost his father during World War II. And the sacrifices made by those in battle would seem to make risking your life for joy a ridiculous thing to do. But at the same time, the freedom to be in the hills and take those risks was precious. And if you wanted to be a climber, there was little option but to take them.
1: Hello, I'm John Kendrick, um, climber, retired teacher. My next birthday will be number 80. I'm an old man now i mean it sounds silly now but i mean when we used to go get on the bus to go up to north wales for a day's climbing i used to think to myself i wonder if i'll get killed today and in in the story i actually say at some point um, i like climbing at Birchins because i don't think i'm going to get killed today i just i enjoyed the spice of adventure about it it had to be it had to be some kind of adventure um I never told my mother what I was doing. I'd say, "Well, we've been climbing, but we've got the rope; it's quite safe." Um, I, I couldn't justify it to me to my mum. <laughs> it's uh, there has to be has to be this uncertainty of outcome to get the full enjoyment. And even even now, I suppose, if I climb with protection and and things, um, there. there it, it has to be, there has to be a bit of leading when um, I rub my nose against the difficulty. Can I or can't, can I not, can I or can I not get up that bit of rock? Um, it's always there, really. But uh, I don't do dangerous things now, <laughs> not really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, the, the uncertainty of outcome is, um, it makes it um, gives that spice, um, sometimes I go climbing just because I know I can do it and I, you know, sort of soloing at, at Birchens on easy routes. I know every handhold or where where all the holes are and but then you need a little bit of a, of a challenge, something where you're not quite sure, can I get up or not, um, will I fall off or not, um, at one time, it was, can I get to the top without falling off and getting hurt? Um, when we started climbing, you know, we had um, no protection, really. My my mate and I from school, we used to get on cycle from West Bromwich to North Wales. And that would be a day, stay in a hut of some kind. Um, and then we had one, um, it didn't have a nylon rope. And we had two nylon slings, um, full weight nylon slings, um, which we used for a billet. And uh, in fact, we had a a carabiner, a steel carabiner, um, which um, was called XWD, XWD carabiners. And uh, we used these uh, with our billet. In fact, uh, until somebody said that, in fact, they're rubbish, and they opened up under shock load, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it weren't even as safe on the belay as we thought we were. And um, one day, I, 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 I was doing some—I was on spiral stairs and in Dennis Cromlick in the pass, and uh, I thought getting a bit. Difficult, and I saw somebody put a sling around a spike. So I used my waist belay, um, my belay loop as a runner, and my mate shouted, out, Hey, that's cheating. <laughs> so we were expected to lead without any protection, and the rope was there to safeguard the second because the leader just did not fall off. And uh, there was certainly a lot of uncertainty of outcome when we went climbing.
2: (laughs) So in amongst all of this, of all the different motivations for soloing, of the ones I viewed as pure and the ones I saw as vain, it surprised me to find out that actually it was John who was a little like John Brown. He was willing to risk his life to impress a girl. Here's the story he sent me.
1: (coughs) Orpheus Wall an impressive route. Orpheus Wall, Birchens. Yes, i still climb at Birchens, or Birchen Edge, Derbyshire, to give the crag its proper name, though we always called it Birchens, and still do, despite the lack of a final S on the OS map and in the guidebook. It must be my favourite practice cliff, with its rough, clean gritstone and friendly atmosphere. "'I've had many happy hours on those easy-angled slabs or steeper buttresses. "'It's a place for relaxed soloing or well-protected leads, "'so it doesn't feel as I'm going to die today. "'But Orpheus Wall? "'No. "'Nowadays I can't bring myself to go near that route. "'I scuttle past with hardly a glance. "'I'm not a neurotic person.' But I still haven't come to terms with the memory of that crazy day over 50 years ago. It was a fine summer's day in the early 1960s, my last meet as president of the University Mountaineering Club. With almost 40 active members, we had 10 or more capable of leading selected gritstone routes at V.S. level, some others who showed great promise and the rest who enjoyed the fresh air, the exercise and the companionship. We were quite proud of the way we looked after the beginners, instructing them in the mysteries of the tarbuck knot and belaying, giving them practice in the essentials of jamming, laybacking, mantel-shelving and gradually encouraging them to lead for themselves. Grateful as we were that someone had bothered to introduce us to the sport, we felt that we had a responsibility to get others climbing, and climbing safely. We mixed well socially too. Travelling together on a coach to our meets, we always stopped at a pub on our way home, when the regular sing-song was just as important as the beer. People remarked on the strong club spirit. A mixture of jokes, teasing, the interplay of strikingly different personalities and the feeling of belonging to a friendly, vigorous club that added to the spice of university life. They were good days, and it had been a good year, I felt, on that last meet. Soon I would be off to the Alps for a few weeks, before plunging into the world of work. But in the meantime, I was enjoying a typical Birchen's day, nothing too strenuous or testing, just good climbing. Towards the end of the afternoon most of the club gathered at the foot of Orpheus Wall. Now, for those not familiar with the crag, I must say that Orpheus Wall is rather more forbidding than the usual Bertrand's route, and very impressive. Graded hard VS, or 5B, it consists of a short steep section before a fierce overhanging wall about 45 feet in all. Many visitors to the crag know it as the line of the traditional abseil from Nelson's Monument, a pillar that stands on the summit and looks across the valley to Wellington's memorial. A couple of miles away, two mute witnesses to the patriotism of the 19th century Derbyshire villagers. Thanks to the association with Nelson, most of the climbs at Birchens have names with a nautical flavour, although Orpheus Wall, first climbed by Joe Brown in 1950, breaks that tradition. But then, Joe Brown never was one to worry over much about tradition, especially when it was a question of setting new standards of daring or difficulty. The first ten feet are both delicate and strenuous, the handholds consisting of thin cracks lined with sharp needle-like crystals that would readily lacerate in cautious fingers. They tell me the cracks have been mutilated in recent years to make them more accommodating of desperate finger jams. After the cracks lies the crux, to overcome the overhang by hooking a knee or heel over a ledge almost at shoulder height and pull up on one higher handhold, bringing easier moves within reach. How do I know all this? In our club, like many, I suppose, we certainly had our share of those glib characters who could recount the desperate moves of the harder climbs without ever having been within a rope's length of them. But in this case, I speak from personal experience, one scene never forgotten. Anyway, the cause of all the commotion beneath Orpheus Wall was that two of our younger club members were failing to get up the route. Before that day, nobody from the club had ever attempted it, intimidated as we were by its reputation, steepness and air of impossibility. The pair in question, however, were top-roping the route. Now, top-roping was a delicate subject in those days, and something we often struggled with when climbers gathered to talk. Without making a formal declaration of the rules, there was a sort of agreement that climbing was more than a matter of simply getting up the route. There had to be some style, daring and an element of risk. In the words of one highly respected past president, you have to give the crag a chance. In the absence of someone to lead a climb, we occasionally top roped it, which we justified as having a look before leading yet with a lurking feeling of guilt. Doing a route on a top rope was not something to be proud of, and no preparation for, for leading on bigger cliffs. It was certainly not to be indulged in as a spectator sport. Perhaps we were hopeless idealists, but every sport has its rules, written or not, and top roping hard climbs was not part of the generally accepted gritstone code of the day. As the brash pair took turns at failing on the top rope, the onlookers, if not exactly giving the slow hand clap, indulged in a fair amount of banter, some of it good-natured, some rather more caustic, implying that the two were wasting their time on a climb well beyond their scope. I said nothing, engaged in my own personal struggle. Deep down, I was conscious of a growing urge to do the unthinkable, a solo ascent of the route on sight. It would be dangerous, outrageous, and pure showing off if I succeeded, and a probable bad accident if I failed. Bold exposed leads were not my normal style, but I was fit, very light, and good on steep rock, layback, or climbs, demanding figure strength. Could I do it? Possibly. Was it justifiable? Definitely not. Apart from the risk of physical injury, there was the loss of my reputation as a safe, responsible climber, conscious of the good name of the club. Yet the urge to compete with these lads was increasingly taking me over. Of course, there were no leagues, cups... "'or points for climbing, "'and I had often insisted that climbing was not a competitive sport. "'Yet we all had an internal checklist of each other's ascents, "'and I was sure that I was a better climber than either of the pair. "'Did I need to prove it? "'Trying to fight down the temptation, I walked away, "'to continue the inner battle "'some distance from the excitable atmosphere at the foot of the cliff.' At that moment, she came up to me. By common consent, she was one of the most attractive women in our club, if not in the university, with dark wavy hair, creamy complexion, brown liquid eyes and slim figure. She was, moreover, a natural climber, not leading much then, but seemingly able to follow almost anything with style and easy athleticism. Fabulous. She was the one we all fancied, and the one we wanted to impress. I had climbed with her a few times, without progressing to anything more serious. Yet she had always managed to leave me with the impression that I could just be the lucky one. The cynic in me nowadays makes me think that she left all the men with that feeling. It was the key to her success. Now she looked at me straight. Why don't you show them how to climb it? Perhaps to be charitable, she meant on the top rope, but I didn't stop to consider. The angry competitive urge welling up inside me was given a further boost by the impulse to impress the woman, and I was over the top, out of control. Powered by a huge rush of adrenaline, I pushed through the onlookers and seized the first holds, lightly up the initial cracks, conserving strength. "'grip the upper handhold with the right hand, "'swing the foot up on the high ledge, "'reach up high with the left hand, "'grab, haul up over the bulge. "'I'd cracked it. "'No time to get tired, no sweat, "'no chalk in those days. "'Extreme care over the top moves "'before a nonchalant descent down a nearby gully. "'Purged, outwardly calm, inwardly elated,' I reached the foot of the climb. The crowd seemed almost in shock. Nobody said anything like, well done. Nobody else tried the route, not even on the top rope. I didn't look at the woman, who made no move towards me. Strangely silent, we all packed our gear, and trailed off in ones and twos to get the coach for the journey home. With my feet firmly on the ground, reaction set in. My elation gave way to a sense of shame. I had broken all my own habits of care and control, climbing to impress on a couple of ambitious lads that they were not in the same league as me. My closest friends could see that it had been a blatant ego trip. I felt I had lost their respect. The pretty woman egging me on had given me a rush of blood that could have turned a good day de- Birchens into something quite bloody there wasn't much to be proud of the memory of that climb can still haunt me in the deep dark hours of the night when old nightmares creep back the thought of that reckless surge up the crag can still bring me out in a cold sweat yes it's an impressive route for sure but climbing to impress is something quite different As I say, I love climbing at Birchens, so long as I can avoid looking at Orpheus Wall.
2: So where does this leave us? I'm not sure I'm any closer to understanding whether my actions are really justifiable. So I thought I'd leave you with some thoughts from the others I've spoken to. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening.
1: I have to say, it's, it's, I mean, I look back on it now, it, it is one of the most ridiculously stupid things I've ever done. But it felt completely comfortable
2: at the time.
3: You know, p- people might uh, shun, shun this form of risk, but then you look at the you know, the habits that people have uh, that will define how they die. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it might be just being dead sedentary, it might be... Eating habits, it might be smoking and drinking habits, and they'll add up to, <laughs> you know, the same thing in the end. Habits can become a bit unconscious, can't they? And yeah, I think I think risk is um, your risk in climbing could become a bit of a habit as well. Yeah.
1: The morals moral we take from this story, story are several. I'm happy to say, say it's, it's virtues that wins in the, the long run. run. Long, long silken pistachios the pay. Keep your head uppermost when you're climbing. If you must slither, be on a rope. Steer clear of the places that sell you cheap races, and the fellow who uses
2: soft soap. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not give it a rating or review on iTunes? It'll help other people discover them in the future as well.